jump into the, the, the lesson this morning and uh, just, have you ever thought about it? Most great entrepreneurs, businessmen, artists, um, politicians, they all have experienced some level of, of, of uh, failure before they are successful. Uh, failure is just a part of success in most people's life. Abraham Lincoln, for example, uh, he kind of had the interesting feat of leaving for war as a captain and returning as a private. Uh, he also failed, uh, had several failed business attempts and then even failed political attempts before he really got traction and worked his way all the way up to president. Uh, we know Albert Einstein as a child really suffered and learning, had a very difficult time. Uh, in fact, they thought he was mentally handicapped. Uh, Steven Spielberg, rejected twice by USC School of Cinematic Arts. I bet they'd like that one back, right? And James Dyson, 5,126 failed prototypes before he invented the bagless vacuum cleaner, worth $4.5 billion, so it was worth all the try. But, uh, but you know, failure's part of success. It's, I mean, we've all experienced it at, to, to some level in our life, but... Maybe have you ever stopped to think that maybe what we perceive as failure is really part of God's bigger plan for our lives, and that failure is really his way of helping to train us up, to teach us something, to uh, humble us, or maybe it's just for his glory. And when we try to circumvent that failure, sometimes we're going trying to work against him and which will bring chaos and, and all kinds of trouble into our lives, as we'll learn this morning. So I want to kind of go back and return to the series I've started on the, on the life of Abram, but this time we're going to be focusing more on his wife, Sarai. And again, it's Abram and Sarai still. They have, their names haven't been changed at, at, at this point that I'll be teaching from. But uh, this is the, the point where Sarai, she's about 75 years old, kind of well beyond childbearing age, and she's still been unable to bear a child for, for Abram. And so she kind of takes things into her own hands, and uh, you know where that kind of usually ends up. And it, it did end up for some problems. But here we're going to hopefully learn a little bit about the difference between walking by sight as well versus walking by faith and see two very different examples of that. And then, but central to this story is also God's plan for redeeming all of mankind as well as how our own individual, God's own individual plans for each of our lives kind of dovetail with that broader, bigger plan that God has for all eternity, for all people. So, will you pray with me? Dear Lord, thank you so much for this morning, for allowing us to gather and worship you, Lord. You are so worthy of our praise, Lord. Lord, we pray that you open up these scriptures and, uh, Lord, just uh, help us to understand what you have for us this morning, Lord, and uh, to see, Lord, your plan and, uh, Lord, how that plan has, has been here from the very beginning, Lord, and how uh, your plan will be done, Lord. Uh, we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Will you turn with me to chapter 16 of Genesis? That's where we will be this morning. And I want to start with the first six verses of Genesis chapter 16. <clears throat> now Sarai, Abram, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai 
said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And then he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her, do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. All right, so here what we want to learn in this first bit of passage is that uh, when walking by sight, we lose sight of God's plan. When walking by sight, we lose sight of God's plan. And you know, we only recognize or realize God's uh, promises when we follow his plan. So that kind of raises a question, why would we ever want to deviate from that? Why would we want uh, to uh, deviate from God's plan? Well, sometimes our expectations are a little different than God's plan, right? We have expectations that, that God doesn't have, and that can cause problems as we see here with Sarah. And that's really the story here. And so we see how the story opens up, right? There's a narrator, and he kind of sets the scene for us, and then, then it follows up with some dialogue. And so this narrator opens up the scene and basically helps introduce us to the two of the important characters in our story, Ab uh, Sarai, which is uh, Abram's wife, and then Hagar, which is an Egyptian maid servant of, of Sarai. And we're also introduced to the main tension within this story, right? Which is this tension that Sarai has not been able to bear a child for Abram. And so um, where did this tension come from? I mean, why does uh, Sarai feel this need to bear a son? Well, um, actually, God promised, right? The she, she gets this idea from uh, the promises that God has made to Abram. And if we flip back a few chapters to verse 12, or chapter 12, uh, the first three verses here, uh, we can kind of see where her expectation is coming from. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make you your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I shall bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see here that, you know, God has, has, has made some promises uh, and Abram and Sarah have been faithful, right? They left their country, their relatives, their father's house, just as God had, had, had commanded them to do. And we see they've been in this promised land for 10 years, uh, as it, it tells us in verse 3. So they have been faithful to God's uh, command. And we see here very clearly that Abram, he is to be the father of a great nation. And we know specifically in, in chapter 15 that it would be through Abram's own body that this heir, this seed would be born. So we know it has to be through Abram. Uh, and 
But where the tension comes in is Abram, Sarai, they, they don't have a son yet, and they're getting old. She's 75, he's 85, well beyond childbearing years as, as we would mark it, right? And so they're met with this, these unmet expectations. It's not too hard to understand, right? Uh, you know, we've all faced that kind of unmet, well, I don't know if that kind, I mean, this is, this is pretty intense, right? Unmet expectation, but we've all felt, you know, that. We've had these unmet expectations in our lives. And so what do we do? How, where do we go when, when we're faced with these? Well, you know, Sarah begins questioning herself, right? Maybe I'm the problem here. We see in verse 2, now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So I think I'm the problem. I'm worried I'm the problem. Maybe I need to step, step aside, step out of the way. <clears throat> and so, um, you know, what do we do when we're met with this kind of question? I, I have these expectations. They're not being met. And uh, is it me? Is it my problem? Is it something I'm doing wrong? Do I need to take action? And, you know, we're faced with these questions. And, you know, what do we do? Well, I want to follow God, right? I want to do the right thing. But, you know, I also, I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, we don't necessarily always have, you know, the exact what we're supposed to do. How do we go from there? What do we do? Well, unfortunately, we see Sarai, she begins walking by sight rather than by faith. And she hatches kind of this plan to accelerate God's promise to her, right? It, it's time. I need a child. She hatches this plan. And uh, we see this here in uh, verse 2. Uh, it's uh, where she speaks to Abram, says, Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain a child through her. So this idea of, her, of him going and laying with Hagar, her, her maid, to have a son, which then they would basically adopt as their child, which sounds a little strange to us today, but this was not unusual in this type. In the, the, the Far East at this time, this was very common. And you got to remember that, you know, they didn't have fertility doctors, right? They couldn't just hop into a doctor and, you know, get, get help. They didn't have children. They didn't have children. They had no one to, to be heirs of, of their estate. And so what were they to do? Well, this was the practice, to go and either have a concubine or to take on another wife, to have a child, and then to basically adopt that child as the heir for this family. And in fact, I mean, this was so common that there were many laws that, you know, described and, and, and governed how you did this, to, you know, to make sure all the different parties are protected in, in this kind of event. So, you know, uh, Sarah was just, it, 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 it could be me and, you know, I, I, you know I'm going to step out and here's my plan to, you know, help provide a child to, to Abram. Makes a lot of sense, right? Well, no. <laughs> It was not the right thing. She got off track, but, but how was she going to know? How would she know that she's getting off track? Well, I think there are five telltale signs here in these uh, verses 2 and 3 that should help us even today kind of recognize whether we're getting off track, that signs that Sarah could have looked at and saw that maybe I am not following God's will here and I need to recalculate. And so... What are these? The first of the five is um, 
And these are questions you can ask yourself. Uh, am I making it all about myself? And I think this was part of what Sarah's problem was. She was making it all about herself. Look in verse 2 how she says, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And then she goes on to say, Perhaps I shall obtain children. She's making it all about herself. God's really not part of it except to lay the blame on him, right? And how insidious is this, right? How often, you know, it, it's easy for us to make things about ourselves and we forget, you know, who it's really all about, um, ultimately about God. So are we making it all about ourselves? So that's the first telltale sign to ask yourself. The second is, what's the real desire here, right? What, what, what's really motivating me in this situation? And we see Sarah is a little misplaced, right? Her, her, her ultimate desire in this, and that's it's that perhaps I shall obtain a child through her. It's all about her getting that child, right? And that's fully understandable. But ultimately, what should she be worried about? It's God's promise, right? And fulfilling God's promise in the way he determines to do that. But she was more focused on fulfilling her needs for a child rather than God's needs in fulfilling the promise. So again, kind of that second telltale sign is really look at what's motivating you in the situation, right? So then <clears throat> the third of these is uh, who are you trusting? Are you trusting yourself more than you're trusting God? And here we see it's, it's kind of really interesting when you, you, you think about it is that Sarah actually here blames God, right? Says God's preventing me from having a child. Yet it's this same God that could prevent her from having a child that could also enable her to have the child, right? And so who is she trusting, you know? Does, is she putting her trust in herself or is she putting her trust in God and recognizing that God is more than able to do uh, what he's promised? And so here is who are you trusting? Are you trusting in yourself or are you really trusting in God and recognizing that if it's a God thing, he can make it happen no matter what. So that's the third telltale sign. Who are you trusting? And then the fourth is, are you using questionable means to accomplish the ends here? And so I think Sarah really was using some questionable means. And <clears throat> I say that is because, again, uh, while God throughout the Old Testament kind of tolerated polygamy, he never condoned it. He never wanted that yet. And, you know, there are many examples, Jacob and David and Solomon and many others who had multiple wives, but they all pretty much met with problems with multiple wives, and God never really condoned multiple wives. And so she's using, again, while it's a common practice, it still is not God's way. And then uh, to make matters worse, then, again, in Again, it should have been questionable in the fact that this was an Egyptian, right? The handmaid was an Egyptian, and that's important in the fact that she would have been pagan. Even if she was beginning to accept some of God's ways, she was still had pagan roots. And you know how God or how Abram through God had had really worked and strove to remain separate from the pagan people and pagan ways around him. He went to the trouble of going, you know, once he did have his son Isaac, going and taking a wife from his original home rather than to get one from uh, the pagan culture around him. Why would it be better for him or even good for him to take a wife who's Egyptian? And so 
I think, again, these are just red flags. You know, are we using questionable means to try to accomplish God's will here? And so all of these things should have been red flags to Sarah that, hey, I'm getting off course. I'm starting to walk by, by sight and not by faith. But the fifth one, I think, is really the most important. I think it's the elephant in the room here is what's missing. It's prayer. There's nothing about prayer, calling on the Lord, or asking, you know, what are we supposed to do here? Maybe they did, but it's certainly not told to us here. And I think if they had prayed, God would certainly have stopped them, uh, stopped Sarai and, and Abram. I mean, he's culpable here, too, from making this mistake. So these five telltale signs that I think we can apply in our own lives today that say we're getting off course we're starting to walk by sight and not by faith. And then what happens when we get off track, when we start walking by sight? Well, there are consequences to pay. And here uh, in verses 4 through 6, I think we see four different consequences uh, that occurred because of Sarah kind of taking, or Sarah taking matters in her own hands. And the first of these, we see that this tension that was just, Sarah's tension to begin with now grows to full-scale conflict. And really, what else was going to come of this, right? And what, what's really kind of sad in all this, Sarah ends up getting exactly what she wants, right? A, a child is conceived. That's what her plan was, but it didn't work out the way she planned, right? And, but if you really stop and think about it, what could have possibly happened, right? It, it, this was, you know, destined to fail regardless. Because if you just stop and think about it, Sarah, what happened when Hagar conceived? That pointed out for sure that it was her problem, right? The problem was with her, and that's hard to bear, right? That I can't provide my husband with a child. So that had to be hard for her. On top of that, um, then... You know, what is, you know, the, the, the natural progression? And she sees her maidservant bearing her husband a son. That's going to make anybody jealous, right? I can't provide my own husband a son. That is going to make me jealous when I see her and the attention she's getting. And then for Hagar herself, I mean, here she was this, you know, pretty lowly maidservant, all of a sudden elevated because now she is carrying the seed of Abram with her. And, you know, it, the, it's just natural for her to start thinking of herself is, is, is pretty good. And then with the jealousy and herself feeling pretty smug, this is just a recipe, a recipe for, or for conflict, right? And that's exactly what is happening. And in fact, I mean, if nothing else, you look at the laws, and the laws actually cover this kind of thing. So this is obviously not... Uh, not unusual. If later the female slave has claimed equality with her mistress because she bore children, her mistress may not sell her. She may mark her with a slave mark and count her among the slaves. So, I mean, there's actually laws that cover this kind of thing. So, this is not unusual for these kinds of feeling, this kind of conflict to occur from something like this. And that's exactly what we see one of the consequences, this conflict. The second thing is, is that we can't just make it go away, right? And although that Sarah and, 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 um, 
Abram actually try to kind of make things go away. You can't just make it go away. It's something that you're going to have to live with, with those choices. And we see that exactly here. And it's, we see that Sarah, you know, says to Abram, may the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. So kind of what's going on here is that Sarah is, is kind of uh, doing a, a court proceeding, right? She's claiming her case in front of, of, of Abram, and, and she's saying, basically, I've been injured here, you know, greatly injured by my, hand, my maidservant, Hagar. I've done this, allowed this, you know, to go forward, and now I am being injured. Now, who are you going to support, Abram? Are you going to support me, or are you going to support Hagar? And she also then claims to God, you know, let God judge, right? So, I mean, she's kind of putting her case out there and uh, to see what will happen. And um, so Abram, you know, he wants to keep, keep peace. We all want to keep peace in the family. And so instead of really stepping up, what does he do? He just kind of says, I, I kind of want this to go away too. So I'll just let you Sarah, decide, you know, what you're going to do. You gave her to me as a wife. I am returning her back to you as your maidservant. You do with her as you please. And then what happens? Sarah mistreats Hagar, and she flees, right? And so problem solved, right? I don't think so. It doesn't work out that way. Usually doesn't work out that way. Third, so that was kind of the second uh, consequence. And again, these are consequences I think we often bear when we get off track uh, from God's plan for our lives. There's also collateral damage, right? And so we've, we've kind of discussed this a little bit, but it's important to recognize the collateral damage. It's, it's not just Sarah and her relationship with God, but it spills over in other people, and other people are drug into this and hurt and sin. Uh, occurs, uh, causes other people to sin or allows them an opportunity to sin. And we see that certainly with Hagar, right? This, you know, maidservant, you know, she was going along, I guess, probably pretty happy, and now she's drug into this. She has a child, and uh, she's mistreated greatly, right? I mean, part of the problem is her, but still, she's drug into this. Her life is changed forever, and we, we see this mistreatment. It occurs here. Later on, again, in Genesis 21, uh, the mistreatment uh, continues, and, I mean, her life is put in peril over and over again. So we see the life of, of, of Hagar and her son both put at, at risk. Abram also drug into this, right? And uh, he's certainly culpable. He sins certainly here uh, as well because he doesn't take action, right? He just kind of steps back. He listens to the voice of Sarah, which, you know, is commendable. We, we definitely have to listen to our wives, but there is a time to question, right, and positively question and say, I don't know. I don't know if that's right. I understand where you're coming from, Sarah, but we need to take this to God. Let's stop here before we make a mistake and see if this is what God wants for us. But we don't see any of that. And then he continues to kind of take a back seat, right, when Sarah has a complaint against Hagar. He says, hey, okay, you know, you do. You take it on. It, this, she's your maidservant. You know, you do what you, you see. And then he said nothing when he saw the mistreat, the way uh, Sarah was, Sarai was mistreating Hagar. So 
in so many ways, he stepped back and he did nothing. And so we see this collateral damage playing out with many people and the sin that produced in their lives along with Sarai, but then long-lasting consequences. And we'll see this in a little bit, but ultimately we know, most of us probably know the story. She bears Ishmael, which became a great nation, and uh, he's actually kind of at the heart of much of the Muslim uh, faith. And we know even from the promises we'll be reading that there would be enmity, strife between uh, the house of Ishmael and his neighbors, one of which is Israel, which we're seeing playing out even today. So these consequences play out for a very long time. We see here uh, uh, with Sarah's mistake. The fourth, and I think probably the most important and kind of the most interesting of this, which is always the case, is that despite Sarah's best effort, God's plan remained unchanged, right? I mean, she had these intentions of having this child of, of, of promise, and she did have a child, but then she chased him away. God had other plans, as we'll see, but ultimately, nonetheless, that child, Ishmael, is not the child of promise that God is going to bless the entire world through. So even with her best efforts, she was not able to do what to deliver the promise that she felt that uh, what, what she was trying to do. So she was unable to accomplish really anything except a lot of chaos, right? And so um, actually what I think is really interesting here, though, is that God was two steps ahead of Sarah. He, I, I feel like he probably knew, well, he did know this was coming, and I, I think he kind of hints at it, the fact that this she was Egyptian, right? And there's the, 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 the author kind of stresses this point, repeats this point a couple of times that she was Egyptian. Remember, she's Egyptian. Why is that important to us? Well, I think uh, a couple of reasons. The first reason is, is it should have signaled, been an everlasting signal to Abram and Sarai the, of their last time they walked by sight instead of faith, right? How did they come about having Hagar? Well, it's all because of when, you know, uh, Abram had, as God commanded him, came down, was living in, in Canaan, in the promised land, and then this famine hit, right? And then without really talking to God, what did he do? He left Canaan and went to Egypt, where then he lied to Pharaoh about his wife, right? Saying he was his sister, which was a half-truth, but didn't say she was my wife. He took her, and that caused all kinds of problems, right? But God protected him. God bailed him out, brought him out, and in fact, you know, when Pharaoh kicked him out of Egypt and him and, you know, his family, what did he do? He enriched uh, Abram greatly, and what was one of those enrichments? It was Hagar, right? And so Hagar's this example. Hey, this is what happens when you step, when you start walking by sight instead of faith. But the other thing, which I think is really interesting here, is... is uh, uh, do you see kind of a, a, a foreshadowing? I think God's foreshadowing something very important here. So what we see in this situation, right, is the oppression of an Egyptian by an Israelite, the, the Egyptian being Hagar, being oppressed by an Israelite, which is Sarai, right, or to be Israelite, and led her to flee to the desert, right, Hagar to flee to the desert. Does that 
sound like a, a, a story that we've heard before, except a little later in Exodus, except in reverse. Here we have the Egyptians oppressing the Israelites and the Israelites fleeing into the desert. In fact, some of the words oppression and flee are, are, are the same in both accounts. So I think God's, you know, again, kind of putting a marker here that, you know, I knew this, but I've got it all handled here. So in summary, the promise is found only in God's plan. We, we can't change God's plan. We won't change God's plan. And uh, all of Sarah's scream, uh, scheming and planning and everything only ended up causing chaos and pain. And, you know, God ultimately rejects that path to the promise and still holds his path as he had planned, right? Uh, and so this is a stark difference of walking by sight versus walking by faith. So what happens then? What happens to Hagar? She's, we see that she's going out into the desert. What happens to her? Let's pick up the story in verse 7. <clears throat> now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they shall be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. And he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. And he will live to the east of his brothers. All right. So what happens to Hagar? Well, here uh, I hope we can see that there is only one path to God's redemptive promise. There is only one path to God's redemptive promise. And Although he has different plans for different people, they dovetail with his greater plan. And so we're going to kind of see some of that, that inner, inner working between individual plans and God's big plan to redeem uh, all of mankind. And again, this section opens up with a narrator, right? And then goes into uh, 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 dialogue from there. So this narrator, again, kind of sets the story, sets the kind of the setting of, of what's going on here. Again, introduces us to the two main characters of this part, and one of them is our old character, Hagar, right? The maidservant, now pregnant, but we are now faced with a new actor, right? And this is the angel of the Lord. And now the tension has moved a little bit, right? And now this Hagar, what is Hagar going to do? You know, she's displaced. Where is she going to do? go? Uh, what's she going to do? And uh, <clears throat> again, uh, a few things that, that we gather from the narrator is where she's at. She's at a, a spring near Shur, which is kind of on the border of the wilderness. It's uh, on the border between Egypt and Canaan. So it appears that, you know, she is uh, at least return, trying to return back home. And uh, she doesn't appear in any peril, right, because she's by a spring of water. I met, you know, she's not in great standings, but she's not about to die either. 
And this idea that the fact that uh, uh, the, the word found here, the angel of the Lord found her, is, it gives the context of that he's been, he searched. He, I mean, this is no chance happening. He went after her to find her, and, and this is where he found her. The important other part here is kind of understanding who is uh, this angel of the Lord, right? And this is not the only place that we see angel of the Lord. Um, we see it 58 times in the Old Testament and uh, eight times as angel of God, okay? So uh, this is not an unusual circumstance, although Hagar is the first human and uh, is she... she I think she may be the only woman, but I can't confirm that. She's definitely the first person to encounter this angel of the Lord, uh, but she's in good company. Some other kind of big names, Ishmael, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Balaam, Gideon, Samson, Elisha, all have an encounter with an angel of the Lord. So what is this angel of the Lord? Is it just kind of a run-of-the-mill angel? whatever that would be, but is it just an angel or is it something more special? It, it actually is something more special, and we can kind of get at it here even uh, in chapter 16 where uh, Hagar associates this angel of the Lord with God. She uh, goes on to call the name of the Lord, so she recognizes you are God. So this is some kind of manifestation of God himself. In fact, uh, many believe this is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, uh, him coming uh, and, and having the encounter with the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So important. It, it, it's some part of God here that's manifest that she is interacting with, God himself, in some way. Um, so what happens here? Uh, she has this encounter with Hagar or, or with the angel of the Lord, and he goes on to completely change her life, right? And he does that by first asking some questions, then making some commands, and then making a promise, which changes everything for her. And so he starts with a question, actually two questions. Where, are you, where have you come from and where are you going? And it's kind of interesting. She answers the first one, right? She goes, I'm, I'm fleeing, my, uh, fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai, right? So, but then she doesn't answer the second question. Why is that? Well, while, you know, she kind of has a plan that she obviously seems to be returning to Egypt, to her homeland, I don't think she really has much of a plan. I don't think she really knows where she's going. I mean, her family ties, she's been gone at least, what, eight years at probably minimum, right? She's been separated from her family, and now things have really changed. She's pregnant and, you know, without a husband. That's not a good place at this day and time. So I don't think she really has a good plan. That's why she doesn't answer uh, uh, the angel of the Lord. And so upon hearing this, what does he do? He, he, the angel of the Lord uh, makes two commands. Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. And that kind of maybe might make you scratch your head a little. Why would the angel of the Lord make her return to the, the mistreatment that uh, she had been, been uh, that she had fled from? And um, 
Well, I think there's a few reasons. One is that I meant she was, Hagar was breaking the law, right? She was a maidservant, a, a slave. She can't just leave, up and leave. You can't do that. But she also has a contract with Abram and Sarai to, you know, have this son, even though they chased her away, there's still a contract there. So in some sense, she is breaking the law and she needs to make that right. Uh, really, I think the the broader reason that the angel of the Lord's calling her to return is that that promise is with Abram, right? In all of the world, the promise lies with Abram, and he's calling her to be associated with that promise. Even though it's different from Abram's full promise, he's still calling her back to that place where God is, right? And that that's where she's going to be the best environment for her and her child, at least for the time being. So that's why the angel of the Lord's calling her back to that, that situation. And she's got to submit. She's got to change herself, right? If, I mean, no matter how Sarah receives her, she's got to submit herself to Sarah. And so that's going to be a change she's got to make. So in some sense, we might say, well, then what has really changed for Hagar? He's, he's calling, uh, the angel's calling her back to the same situation that she was in. But as we know, because the promise was made, everything has changed now. She has purpose for life, purpose to live, right? And she is now no longer just submitting to Sarai, although she has to do that. But really, she's not submitting to Sarai. She's submitting to God, and that changes everything. And so it is completely changing her life. So... <clears throat> um, where do we go from here? Now the promise, right? The angel of the Lord pronounces the promises and kind of starts here with this big overarching promise, right? That I will greatly multiply your descendants so they shall, so they shall too be too many to count. <clears throat> and so, yeah, I mean, that's something to live for, right? To know that you are the mother of a, a great nation, actually, uh, uh, Ishmael is told that he will be the father of a great nation coming forward. So she will be the mother of a great nation. Only woman in Genesis to be promised this. Usually these kinds of promises flow through the male, but here it's through Hagar, which is kind of unusual. But really, we got to remember at the end of the day, this promise is flowing through Abram, right? Ultimately, God had promised Abram that he would be father of a great nation, right? That his descendants would be more numerous than you can count, right? And this is part of that promise. Even though it's a different seed than through uh, Isaac, nevertheless, this is a, a fulfilling a promise to Abram as well. So the angel of the Lord then goes on to explain a little bit about uh, some, of these, some of the promise. First, he begins by giving a few details about how this is going to occur, right? says, behold, you are with child. Well, I already knew that, but you shall bear a son. So that's new news to her, right? And also now a command, you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. So here he says, I want you to name this son Ishmael because I've heard you. It means uh, God hears. Ishmael means God hears. And in this case, the affliction that she's been dealing with. And so and it's important to note here that God is calling her back into this 
this situation of oppression. But that, you know, is really nothing new, right? We see this kind of as a theme over and over in the Bible. Just because we're in God's way doesn't necessarily always mean, you know, uh, things are easy. But sometimes God calls us to oppression for a reason. And so we see that happening here with Ishmael and, uh, well, with Hagar. Um, and then finally, we see some more details about the promise itself, right? And in terms of, although you're going to have all these descendants, uh, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. So in other words, he, you know, donkeys, they live in desert places or nomadic. So he's going to be kind of this wandering type uh, of person. But then his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. There's this enmity, this strife between him and his neighbors, which again, as I mentioned you know, even extends today. This is an Arab, you know, uh, one, one part of the Arab nation, right? And we have the Israelites, which are continuing to be at odds against each other. And so a couple of things that we can take away from this promise, which I think is, is really important when we step back and look at it. And the first is, is that God works uh, his plan in spite of, of you know, our, our sin, right? So even as Sarai, you know, walked by sight and instead of by faith uh, and caused all these troubles and these consequences occurred, yet God's plan wasn't changed, right? And in fact, God's plan was fulfilled in the sense, at least through Abram and his being, you know, uh, many nation or many descendants, right? Part of that promise was being fulfilled in spite of, of, of Sarah and, and her misplaced efforts, right? Uh, but again, second part of this is that, um, that God has both a plan for Abram and for Hagar, yet they are very different, right? Um, Yes, both of them are promised to have multiple descendants, more than they can count. In fact, they go on to be promised that they will be, you know, seed of great nations, right? Both Hagar or Ishmael and, and, and uh, uh, Abram. But that's kind of where the, the similarities end. We see Abram, he's going to be blessed, uh, and he himself will be a blessing, and God will bless those that bless him and curse those who uh, curse him. But Ishmael, on the other hand, what happens to him? He's going to be a wild donkey. And I mean, everybody's against him and he's against everybody. That, that's very different from the blessing that's given to Abram, right? But more importantly, there's only one place where all the peoples on the earth will be blessed. And that is only through Abram's chosen seed, Isaac. And so make no mistake, there's only one path to that redemption through Jesus Christ. And, you know, we see it very clearly here that God has a plan and it's only going to occur according to that plan. And so we see promises, but they're very different. All right, so how does Hagar now respond to this promise? And I think it's very significant. Let's pick up in verse 13. Now she called the name of the Lord who spoke well, now she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Thou art a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore, we, the well was called Ber 
Lahoi Roy because it is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So how did Hagar respond? Well, uh, <clears throat> we see here we fulfill God's plan for our lives when we walk by faith. We fulfill God's plan for our lives when we walk by faith. And that's what we see Hagar doing. She's been given this promise, and she follows in faith uh, what God commands her to do. And in fact, I think it's, this is really a beautiful example of when someone comes in the presence, encounters God in such a, a way, uh, it is a perfect example for how we need to respond when we come into contact, when we encounter Jesus Christ, whether it's for the very first time or the thousandth time we encounter Christ, this is a perfect uh, response to him. And we see her response characterized by five things that we too should, should uh, be characterized by. Belief, surrender, worship, obedience, and transformation. Belief, surrender, worship, obedience, and transformation. So... First, what does Hagar do? She, she believes. She believes the promise that God made her. Um, and, you know, obviously she immediately knew that there was something special. You know, this is something divine by him, right? He knew who I was. He, he knew my situation. But he also knows my future, right? And um, it's kind of interesting. Um, well, I mean, just listen to her words. I met she called the name of the Lord. She didn't call on the name of the Lord. She called the name of the Lord. What does that mean? She's naming God. She's giving God a name. And what name does she give him? Um, Thou art a God who sees, which is, I met a little interesting, right? Because here he had just given her this great promise. And rather than her kind of focusing in on that promise and how great you're going, you know, the great things you're going to do with me, she focuses just on the very essence, the, the personage of God, the fact that God came and interacted and encountered her. And, I mean, that's what it was about. What a, what a I mean, a, a beautiful uh, just reaction that she has here. And, uh, you know, she is the only person in all of the Old Testament who actually names God. I mean, who does that? But, I mean, she is just so overwhelmed and her, I met here, you know, she was a pagan, but now she believes in God because of this encounter, because she fully believes in this promise that God has made her. So, second thing, how does she respond? Hagar surrenders herself to him, right? And I mean, we see again that uh, she, we, we, we get this sense that she's surrendering, that she realizes that I have no right. I have no reason to be in the presence of God. I can't be in the, the presence of God because here she says, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? She realizes I'm in the presence of God and I survived. So we see this kind of brokenness, if you will, in her that I, 
I don't have any right to be here in front of God. I mean, this is much the same with, with Moses when he wanted to see God, but God had to cover his face as he moved by because if they see the face of God, he would die. And so it, it, it's this idea that, you know, I, I can't look upon the face of God. And so here uh, she's broken just as we must be broken. We must recognize our sin like she did uh, our unworthiness and put everything on Jesus Christ uh, and on his blood is the only way that we can access, that we can come before a very holy God. So she surrendered herself. She was broken by her interaction with God. Third, Hagar's words are filled with worship. Right? Kind of immediately what's happened. All, everything that comes out of her mouth is worship. Rather than focusing in on thanksgiving or what you've promised me, it's just your presence and the fact that you would come to me overwhelms her, right? And um, she's, again, we see this in as she goes on and, and names the place where she is at, right? Beer Lahi Roy or something like that. Um, there's a little confusion as exactly what it means, but uh, the idea is that it's the well belonging to the living one who has seen me. Again, you know, it's this idea of just God would come and, and have an encounter with me, a lowly maidservant, here wandering in the desert. You would hear me from my distress and you would come to me and be in this place with me. And so this beautiful example of worship that should be the first thing off our lips when we encounter a holy God. Fourth, we see Hagar acted in obedience. Then when she was given a command, she followed through, right? She didn't know how Sarah was going to respond to her, yet she did exactly as she was told. She left. She went back to the, 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 the house of Abram. Uh, we also see she bore the son as she was supposed to and then worked out a deal, obviously convinced Abram that you know, what she had seen was real and then Abram believed her in enough so that he named the child Ishmael as God had directed. So we can see that she followed through on God's command. She obeyed God completely here. And so we, in the same way, belief, uh, <clears throat> brokenness, worship, and obedience. It's all part of our encounter with God. And then uh, finally, uh, we see transformation in Hagar, right? It's very obvious, this transformation that occurs. When the story opens, we see Hagar, uh, a very different person. She's this Egyptian, right? Uh, very likely uh, with pagan beliefs, right? Now, she certainly would have heard of uh, the Abraham, of uh, the God of Abraham, but here we see her belief is fully put in God now. Uh, she's put all of those other beliefs behind and believes fully in God. We also saw her gloating, right, over her procreating abilities and feeling support, superior to her mistress, but now she's broken, right? She's broken not because of Sarah, but she's broken because of her interaction with God. And she knows 
where her submission needs to be. She was also a defenseless pawn of Sarah, right? Sarah was just handing her off to her husband and chasing her off and all these other kinds of things, but now she's a woman with direction. Before, you know, she was wandering pretty aimlessly. Now she has direction because she has a promise. She knows what God has promised her. She has purpose in her life. So we too can only, I meant we will be transformed when we come in contact, when we encounter a, a perfect and great God, holy God, if the other parts, the belief, the worship, the, the brokenness is part of that and obedience. We will be transformed just like her. So here we've seen two different women, right, uh, who had two different promises and responded to those promises in different ways. Uh, through Abram, God had promised Sarai a son. Uh, she was 75, and, you know, it's understandable that, you know, she was worried that she was part of the problem, but she got off track. She started walking by sight rather than faith. It caused a lot of trouble. But even at the end of the day, it didn't change God's plan, and in fact, God continued to accomplish his plan and fulfill his promise through Abram uh, to, uh, you know, make many descendants through Abram, through Hagar. On the other hand, we see a Hagar, too, was promised a son as well. But here, which required her to obey, to submit to Hagar, to the uh, mistreatment uh, that she had endured from Sarah, and she did. And here we see her, her, in contrast, walking by faith, which is characterized by belief, surrender, worship, obedience, and transformation. So just one final closing observation, though, uh, not to, to be too hard on Sarah. Sarah, I, I mean, we understand she was in a difficult situation. She was old. She needed to, uh, you know, provide this son, right? Uh, but not, even with her, her sin and her, her uh, walking by sight rather than faith, God ultimately did produce the seed, the promised seed through her and Abram. He still used her at the end of the day. She had to wait 14 years more on top of this, right? She's only 76 at this point. She'd be 90 before she'd have a child. So still had a long wait ahead of her, but she did. So God can obviously use us even when we get distracted as long as we get back on track. So will you stand with me and pray as we close? <clears throat> Dear Lord, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time to open your word and, Lord, to worship you. Uh, Lord, we're just so encouraged, uh, Lord, to, to see your plan and how it lives out in different lives, Lord, and how your plan is perfect, Lord, and that we ourselves cannot change that. We wouldn't want to change it, Lord, and help us to always... Uh, work to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, help us to see when we're getting off track. Lord, we praise you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.